Good evening, everyone. Well done for for coming out. I I, I respect the temptation of uh, your your bed and YouTube, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So well done for coming out, um, friends. So we're talking about the the resurrection. It's Resurrection Sunday. Happy Resurrection Sunday, by the way. And uh, I want to divide the talk into two. I want to talk about the reality of the resurrection, and then I want us to talk about the significance of, of the resurrection. Now, let's just try and put ourselves, because we need to rescue this message from familiarity. We need to remind ourselves what's been happening in, uh, in the life of, of Jesus and in the life of the disciples up until, the, uh, up until this point. So it's going very well for the, for the disciples. They are following this this guy called Jesus, and he is performing miracle after miracle, and it is super significant uh, in the sense that uh, lives are restored, and um, his teachings are profound, etc., etc. And um, and there's also revolution in the air in the sense that Passover, when we celebrate Passover, it has a very deep political implication because Passover reminds the Israelites of their redemption from from Egypt. So, so celebrating Passover in first century Israel is is, is 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 very political in the sense that people are very excited about maybe God will redeem us from underneath the Romans. So that's the sentiment that is going on. And these disciples are very excited because they are following the guy who claims to be the Messiah. Not only does he claim it, he backs it up with powerful deeds and powerful teachings. It is Passover. They are in Jerusalem, and there's a showdown about to happen. And, and what these guys are doing is they are pretty much picking their uh, respective positions within the cabinet, what they are going to do, maybe how they're going to decorate their offices, and they're super excited about that. And then Jesus dies. All right, and that is a big bummer. All right, it's only us on this side of the resurrection that is excited about the cross or a cross. Nobody was excited about the cross in, in, in the Roman era. The cross meant that is the end of your movement. And the disciples were faced with one of two options either they give up on this whole messianic idea, this idea that Israel will be redeemed by this, that, by this Messiah from the line of David. Or they find themselves a new Messiah. Those are the two options that they have. They can go find themselves a new Messiah, or they just give up on the messianic idea. What you do not do is what they did. And that is, after a few days, they claimed that this Messiah, this Jesus, was risen from the dead. And he appeared to them in the body. And not only to them, but to many of his followers, to many skeptics, um, etc., etc. Now, what is, what is significant about this is that there were many messianic movements, many Jewish groups who were very excited about the coming kingdom on either side of, 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 of Jesus' life. So you can go 100 years before Jesus, 100 years after Jesus, and you have many guys claiming to be the Messiah. They have followers, and you know how their messiahship ends on the cross. And one of two things happened then. Either, you know, they abandoned, oh, he wasn't the Messiah, he died on the cross. That is pretty much uh, conclusive proof that he, uh, he's not the Messiah. Or what they would do is they would say, oh, you know what, um, he's dead, obviously, but this messianic spirit 
rests on his descendant. So then they will carry it on in sort of a lineage. You, you understand what I'm saying? So there's one guy, at least, Judas Maccabeus, and uh, he had a bit of a line, a Messianic line. So that's the only exception that ever happened. But in Jesus' uh, case, nobody ever claimed that, ooh, the Messianic spirit rests on his brother James. He is now the Messiah. No, 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 nobody ever says that. They claim that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, now guys, I, I'm pretty convinced by, by them. Now, you might say I'm paid to be convinced by them, so you're not very convinced about me being convinced. So I want us to just look at the reality of the resurrection for a, for a minute. And if, you are, if you're skeptical about the resurrection, then, then just hear me out this, this evening. So I want to read this a passage. This is from the Luke's Gospel, Luke 23, from verse 50, all the way to 24, verse 12. Luke 23, from verse 50. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea, and he was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. So this council that he's part of is the Sanhedrin, and it was a despised council. It was full of Jewish aristocratic religious leaders, all right? So he didn't uh, consent to their decision and actions, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. Now, this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The woman who had come with him from Galilee followed him and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. Now, let's stop there. We're going to continue in a bit. So you have this guy, Joseph of Arimathea, who asked for Jesus' body, he has to hurry because on the Sabbath, you're not allowed to do a thing. So he has to hurry, he asks for the body, he can get an, uh, an appointment with Pilate because he's that connected, he's you know, high up. He gets the body and he takes him to a tomb and, uh, and, and, and there are a couple of things. One, he's rich, so this tomb that he's giving Jesus is pretty nice, all right? It's, it's a rich person's tomb. And the tomb was well known because he comes from a wealthy family, so people would have known the location of, of this tomb. Now, the reason why historians looking at this today says that this is almost an undisputed fact, even if you are skeptical about Jesus' resurrection, people say this really happened because there's no way that the early church would have invented a story of a guy from the Jewish Sanhedrin, the very council that condemned Jesus to death, that he was going to be this great guy who, do, who asked for Jesus' body and hurried up before the, uh, before the Sabbath to bury Jesus and, 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 and uh, you know, sacrifice this family tomb to him. If you were making up the story, you would say, and Peter the brave um, went and he saw that his Messiah was, was, died on the cross and he said, oh my, not on my watch. And he ran to the cross, took him down and buried him and covered the tomb himself. You know, if I made up the story, that's sort of what it would have sounded like. But at this point, if you guys don't know it, the disciples are missing in action. They are hiding somewhere, drinking Prozac. They are not going through a good time at all. And it is this member of the Jewish Sanhedrin who was the one standing up and who was the one taking care of Jesus' body. So what we know is that the tomb was known. This is an established fact about Jesus' resurrection. Let's continue reading. Luke 24 says, But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. 
But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other woman with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping in, uh, stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Now, what's interesting about this? Joseph of Arimathea, when he buried Jesus, he went with a lot of spices. That's probably because he was rich, and he had a lot of spices sort of in his kitchen, okay? Speculation. The, the woman, they... They had to first wait for the Sabbath. Then after that, they could buy some spices. But you had to prepare these bodies, right? So there's sort of an ancient way in which you um, would put the, the body in linen and you would spice it up so it doesn't decay immediately. And it's sort of a, a gracious exit into life, um, into the afterlife. But the one thing that you guys shouldn't think here is that the woman or Joseph of Arimathea went to the tomb and remembered Jesus said he's going, he might rise on the third day. So I'm going to take spices just in case, but I think he's going to rise. This is exciting stuff. Nobody went there expectantly, all right? That's why they took spices. They were mourning. Nobody thought that Jesus was going to rise, even though Jesus said it many times. But what is interesting, every time Jesus says, remember, I'm going to rise, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise on the third day, the only thing that, that what, what the disciples talk about immediately afterwards is who's the most important in the kingdom of God. They were fighting for positions in the kingdom. Every time Jesus said it, it is bizarre. They said, ah, oh, that's a good point, Jesus. So in my corner office, do you think I should go for burgundy? Or so what color do you think I should go for? Uh, they missed the point over and over again. And uh, the Jewish expectation, by the way, of resurrection, when Jesus spoke of resurrection, what they would have heard would have been the resurrection at the end of days. This is the resurrection that Christians to this day long for. In other words, not a resurrection of one man in the middle of, of history. We're talking about a resurrection at the end of days when the Messiah is raised and God's kingdom come and heaven and earth meet and uh, we have our glorified body. That is, the, that is the Jewish and the Christian hope, okay? So that is what they had in mind. They, they never had any idea of the possibility of one man in the middle of history rising with his glorified body. Okay, it's important to know that. And even though Jesus said something, they were incapable of hearing it. And you know what? Um, it's, it's so interesting. There are certain things that we are just incapable of hearing, even though we've heard it many times. So, for example, my, uh, uh, I've, I've, I've got this older friend, and he, he worked in the police force, and he was actually present at the Ravonia trial where Mandela was sentenced. And he said he, remember, he, he remembered the, the hatred he ha had, the vitriol he, ha he had towards Mandela. This is a terrorist. This is a guy killing our people. This guy is dangerous. And listening to his speech at the Ravonia trial, just thinking, ah, oh, this ideology. You see, this guy is bad. Just listen to him. Just listen to him. And then he listened to that speech on the other side of 94. And he's like, that is super reasonable, what Mandela is saying. That is like... 
that is moderate, that is reasonable, that is, um, that is forgiving, it is, uh, how could I have heard that thing and heard hatred when what he said was the complete opposite? Because, because of the ideology, because of Afrikaner nationalism, he wasn't able to hear what Mandela said. And I mean, the same is true for parents and children, right? Uh, a parent can tell a child 500 times, don't do that, don't do that. But they are incapable of hearing it because of their environment, because of hormones, because of hormones, and etc., etc. So, so, So it is, we, we need to understand that when Jesus said this, their whole Jewish understanding of how the world worked and how resurrection works and what they expected of the Messiah stopped them from, from hearing that. So when they went to him, to his body, they expected a dead body. All right. Now, second thing that's important. The fact that women were the first witnesses to, to the empty tomb and the fact that these women weren't just witnesses, they ran back and they were told by the angels, go and tell, go and tell the, um, the apostles. Now, this is not a talk for it. This is not that kind of talk. But I know some people here might be skeptical about the whole thing about women preachers. I just want to say, the very first evangelists in the world were a bunch of women who ran to the apostles and told them Jesus was risen. Just saying. Um, we, we, can, we can just put that there in the corner and um, I'll drop the mic later. But the, what's, what's, what's interesting there is that if you were making up a story about Jesus' resurrection, you would not ever have invented women to be the key witnesses to this empty tomb. As a matter of fact, the earliest Roman polemic that we find that, in other words, this is what they're saying, oh, this Christian resurrection story is a bunch of nonsense because the people who saw it first were a bunch of women. So this whole thing is fabricated. It's, it's idle talk. As a matter of fact, you see it in this verse that we read when the women came and these brave apostles were sitting at home feeling sorry for themselves. What was their first response? And, uh, but these words seemed to them idle talk, okay? And that's, what, that's how men worked in those days, maybe even to this day. That it's, 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 it's idle talk. We cannot trust the, 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 the testimony of these women. And it's so interesting that when Paul writes about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, he has this wonderful list of people. It's actually a creed. I want to just read a section of it to you guys um, of, of who Jesus appeared to. And if you guys listen carefully, you will notice something. So, so this is, this is um, what he says. Uh, and this is what he says. For I delivered to you as of first importance that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, Cephas, which is another name for Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. He also appeared to James, then he appeared... To, uh, to Thomas, um, uh, to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. So that is, that is a creed that, that Paul is actually reciting, that first bit, who Jesus appeared to. Who is notably absent from that list? The woman. He says, 
He's, he's, he's quite deliberate. He appeared to 500 brothers. He appeared to 500 men, all you skeptics. Please believe in this thing. Women, forget about them. I'm just going to selectively put this, um, this little thing together and, and, and just drop the women out of the story. Why? Because it was embarrassing. Because the Romans didn't take the story seriously. Now, that is what historians call, is, uh, what they call the criteria of embarrassment. If there is an element in the story that really makes the, the founders of the movement look bad, then that is a sign of historicity. So in the same way that um, uh, if I make up a story about myself, so I, I go and I tell you, I, um, uh, I cheated on my wife. Um, yeah, no, it was crazy. I, I did that and that and that, and I, I, I kicked my baby boy five times. Um, and you will say, uh, and then it comes out that it is not true. Would that be bizarre? Yes, because why would I lie to get myself in trouble? Right? right? I would lie to say, I played for the Bulls when I was 18, got an injury, would have been the best, you know, life happens. Um, and maybe somebody might be impressed by that story. I would lie so that I look good, but I won't lie so that I look bad. So this is what they call the criteria of embarrassment, and that is why we think that this, uh, as a matter of fact, skeptics also say that there's no doubt that the women were the key witnesses to the empty tomb. All right. I want to just nerd out a little bit, if that's okay. You guys are going to be bored, some of you, but just bear with me. So Paul wrote his letters earlier, okay? So, so, so Paul... Uh, when he wrote Corinthians and, and all of his letters, he, he wrote them much earlier than the Gospels. The Gospels were written a couple of decades after Paul. And Paul cites this creed that we just read in 1 Corinthians 15 about the resurrection, about whom Jesus appeared to. And in this creed, he notably uh, he neglects to, 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 uh, to put the women in that, uh, in that creed. And Paul is earlier than the Gospels, but all the Gospels, all four of them, include this message that it was the women who were the first and key eyewitnesses. Now, usually, the Gospels are dismissed as, ah, well, you know what, it's far removed from the event in question. It's not that historical. But the fact that they kept it in when they were doing a biography of Jesus means that it was so well established in the oral tradition that there was no way for them to leave it out. Does that make sense? So, so that is historically bedrock, all right, that the women discovered the, the empty tomb. So what we have is we have a tomb that was known, and secondly, we have a tomb that was empty. Now I want us to just continue reading. So now we are at Luke 24 from verse 13. Are you guys still with me? All right. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there, there in these days? Ironically, he's the only one who knows what happened in these days. And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people. 
and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we have hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and beside all of this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They went to the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but, but, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is, it is almost evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them, and when he was at the table with them, he took the bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that is myself. Touch me and, I, and see. For a spirit that does not have flesh and bones, as you, have, uh, as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate it before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I know that's a mouthful. We're going to get back to that in a second. So Jesus appeared to his disciples afterwards. Now again, from a historical perspective, we are convinced, even the skeptics are convinced, that the disciples had experiences of Jesus after his death. Now, they would obviously not say it was the real Jesus. They would say it was a hallucination of sorts. Now, what, what we say in return is that hallucinations is a very, it's a very private thing. So last night I dreamt and had a vivid dream. Usually I don't remember my dreams. Last night I, I remembered my dream and I had to wake up my wife and tell her about my dream because somehow, although she was in the dream, she couldn't remember it. Why? Because it was a very subjective experience, right? That's why it sucks to discuss dreams with other people where, even though they were in your dream because it's, it's super subjective. So hallucination, that sort of psychological state that you find yourself in, is very private. It is not something that you experience on a corporate level. Does that make sense? 
the other thing is that Jesus appeared not only to his followers, but also to skeptics, like Paul, like James, his brother, was, was very skeptical. Thomas was also very skeptical. So you have Jesus appearing to his followers and to skeptics alike on different occasions in different settings, and they all share the same hallucination. I do not think that that is a reasonable explanation. The other explanation that people give is that they stole Jesus' body, and then they made up the whole thing of oh, Jesus rose from the dead, yay, everything is amazing. But here's the problem. If you steal the body, and then you tell this lie to everybody, he's risen, and then all of them, basically minus one, dies for this lie, then surely somewhere they would say, no, 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 no I'm a joke, I'm a, it's a joke, it's a joke, under the tree, we bury them. Um, it's not really what happened. Again, I would, I would maintain my lie that I played uh, scrum off for the bulls for a couple of seasons. And, and I will try and perpetuate that lie, but as soon as you guys threaten me with death, then I will say, it, it was a joke, I thought, I, I said fools, not bulls, fools, it, it's a club, um, and it's online, um, it's, it's, a, it's an internet game. I would, I would completely and, and very quickly backtrack and say it's, it's really not what I, what I meant. But these guys all died, minus one. Most of his followers died horrendous deaths in proclaiming this message because they really believed in it. Now, liars, friends, do not make good martyrs. Liars really do not make good martyrs. So, so that is also, I don't think, a satisfactory explanation. I think the best explanation for it, and I'm biased, as we all are, is that Jesus really bodily rose from the dead, and he turned these dejected, Prozac-drinking uh, disciples into the most prolific missionary organization that has ever uh, walked on this earth. And the only, I think, reasonable explanation for that is, is that Jesus really did rise from the dead. Now, to ask the questions that we asked is very modern questions to an ancient text. And I think we can do it if we, if we try and figure out what is, what is history and what is reliable, what we can trust, etc., etc. I think that is an important, those are important questions. But it doesn't answer the question of significance. So I want to ask, or I want to at least explore, what would it have been from a significance perspective when a first century Jew would have read this? How would he make sense of it? So we just put ourselves in their shoes or in their sandals, as it were. Now there are two things that's interesting. The first is this random story about the Emmaus disciples. So Jesus just conquered death, which is pretty cool, all right? And what is his first action? He walks with two random people for the whole day. If I win the lottery, what you do is you, you, you tell people, or maybe it's not a good, good example. If you, tell, if you win the lottery, just shut up about it and give your tent to the church. But, um, for example, Kari um, uh, had her gender reveal party the other day. And it's bizarre. I, I've never been to a gender reveal party. A balloon burst, things came out. And I still didn't know what was going on. Um, but people were excited. Why? Because if you've got big news, then you just want to tell everybody, and you tell it in a very weird way. Uh, and I'm, I'm st actually still not sure what they're getting. But, uh, but the point is, is that 
That's what you do with big news. And, and what Jesus does with the biggest news ever is he, he just walks with these two people. What's going on there? We need to explore it. We need to double-click on that. And then the second thing is, I'm not sure if you've picked up on it, but if you lis- listened uh, uh, carefully, you would have picked up on the third day, the third day. There's constant reference to the third day. What's going on there? Why didn't Jesus ri- rise on the fourth day? You know, just stayed in the tomb longer. Or the next day. Why didn't, and he, he died and, and rose on the next day. Why is the third day significant? Now for this, we need to go and click on these hyperlinks and it's going to take us all over scripture. But I think it is quite exciting and I think it's going to help us understand the significance of, of Jesus' resurrection. Are you guys still with me? Okay, the third day. Let's try and find it. So there are a couple of... Th- a couple of places in Scripture where we, we find this third-day narrative, this third-day motif. The first one is in the Genesis account of the creation. So we've got six days of creation, but, but guys who really study the Hebrew, they say it's a poem that you can divide into two threes. All right? So you've got six days of creation, but you've got two threes. And the third day and the sixth day mirror each other. They, are, they, 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 they look very similar. So the first third day... Is, is this. It says, And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning. It was the third day. Actually, just before it, it says, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, fruit trees bearing fruit, in which there is seed, each according to its kind, on the earth. So what we have on the first third day is just life from non-existence. Are you with me? Okay? There's nothing, and then all of a sudden you just have, have, uh, have, have, have plant life just coming out, up out of the ground. The second third day, we read something here in Genesis 2, verse uh, 7, which is, Then the Lord God formed a man from, of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. All right? So on these two third days, the first third day, which is the third day, and the second third day, which is the sixth day, <coughs> if you guys are with me, then, then we will give certificates later. Um, you have life from the ground. One is human life, the one is plant life, okay? And there are two other things that happens there as well. The one is Eden was on a mountain, It was a high place. The reason why we say that is just a couple of verses later. It says, all the rivers came from Eden. It went downwards from there. So we can imagine that Eden was this this high place, this connection between heaven and earth. All right? So we have a mountain. We have new life coming out out of nothing. And you've got this technical thing, which is a covenant. And that is how God relates to his creatures. And he... He, he, he sets the world uh, in a particular way and he says that I want you guys to be fruitful. I want you guys to multiply. And, and this is the relationship that he has with his creatures. We've got those three things on, this, on these first two, three days. Are you with me? All right, let's move on. The second three-day uh, sequence that we encounter comes to us in Genesis 22. So in Genesis, in Genesis 22, it's this very difficult story that we're not going to um, ex- expand on, where Abraham is to sacrifice Isaac. And in Genesis 22, verse 4, we read, And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes 
and saw the place from afar. So what's going on? He has to go to this mountain. He has to go to Mount Moriah, all right? It's the third day, just this random third day, whatever it means. And then Isaac is spared. He, uh, he's, he is reunited with his son. His son is almost, um, to a certain extent, brought back to life. Hint, hint, shadow, shadow. Um, and then um, when, when, when God makes this promise to Abraham, he says, in Genesis 22, verse 17, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashores and your offspring shall possess the, gates, uh, the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations and of the earth be blessed because you obeyed my voice. So we've got three things again. We have a mountain. We have a third day. We have uh, actually four things. Uh, we have a new life. In other words, Isaac is restored to his father. And the next thing is this covenant, which is God will bless you. I am reiterating the fact that I will bless you and you will have many descendants and you guys will cover the whole earth. And that is very exciting news for Abram. Now, where's the next third day? In Exodus 19, what's happened? Moses has just, the God, God has just led through Moses, the Israelites out of Egypt, out of captivity, and he takes them to this mountain, to Mount Sinai. And at the foot of this mountain, we read the following. This is Exodus 19 from verse 3. Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant you shall be my treasured possessions among all the people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be, be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. So again, what we have here is a mountain. Again, what we have here is a reference to the third day. As a matter of fact, if you continue reading Exodus 19, then you're just going to continuously see the third day. Let me just give you um, another, another version. So it says, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and, and be ready for the third day. For the, on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Again, we're not going into the detail of these stories. The only thing I want you to know is that this is... This third day seems to go with the mountain. It seems to go with a new way in which God is relating to, to mankind. And it seems like there's new life, new identity in the sense that these Israelites were slaves. And now they are, they are free. They, they're getting a new identity as, as God's holy people, as, as a priesthood, etc., etc. Now the story goes on. And in uh, the, one of the small prophets um, there's a, there's a guy called Hosea, appropriately called Hosea. And, and, and what happens here is we see something very fascinating. So Hosea was, um, he's, 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 he's asked these crazy things. He must, he must marry a very promiscuous woman and he must stay loyal to her. And the reason why it is significant is because it resembles God staying with us even though we continuously cheat on him, even though we continuously walk away from from him but then in the middle of Hosea we read this come let us return to the Lord and after two days he will revive us on the third day he will raise us up that 
we may live before him. So again, we have the reference to the third day. Again, there's this, uh, this sense of resurrection. All right. The last one that I quickly want to reference is just the strange story of Jonah. Probably the weirdest resurrection in all the Bible. Where here's a guy who was swallowed by a fish and then on the third day vomited up on the shores of Assyria. And Jesus was very fond of this connection. And he says, just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days, likewise the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth for three days. What is the significance of that? And also in Jonah, it's also the, the reference to the third day, the third day, the third day. What's going on? Jesus talks about the third day in the Gospels more than 21 times. When he dies, he is put in the ground. He's put in the tomb. And when he is resurrected, this is the hope that, that the, the Israelites were hoping for all along. What was going on in Genesis, what, what was going on with Isaac and Abraham, what was going on with, with Moses, what Hosea was looking for, what Jonah in a weird way was foreshadowing. And this is what he is explaining to the Emmaus disciples. This is what he was explaining to all of his disciples, how everything in the Old Testament is connected to him. This is the new life of new lives. This is the resurrection that will finally bring God's kingdom on earth. So there's new life coming up from the ground, and that is his resurrection. There's a covenant, there's a new way in which God is relating to his people. And we see this actually in Luke 24, where, where he sends out the people and he says, you guys must just preach forgiveness of sins. God has, has in Jesus somehow dealt with our sins. There's a new way, there's a, there's a new covenant. The, the temple sacrifices and all of that has become redundant. We don't have to worry about those things anymore. And uh, the final thing is that all this happens at the foot of Mount Calvary. Golgotha. Can you see how these things fall into each other? The third day resembles God, resembles God doing something, something big. He did it in, in the garden. He did it with Abraham. He did it at Mount Sinai. The prophets foresaw it. They were very excited. And Jesus continuously referred to the third day, the third day, the third day. And the third day happens next to a mountain. There's a new covenant. There's a new way God is relating to people. Um, there's new life. And uh, it, is, it, is, it, is, it is just glorious. This new life and how it plays out is scattered all over the Lucan account. Let, me just, let us just go back there. I, I know that I, I said a mouthful. Let me just ask one last time. Are you with me? <laughs> okay, good. So, so what does this new life look like? If the story of the prodigal son is the best story ever told, then I would say the story of the Emma's disciples is the best story ever sketched. And I want you to just see how mystical and beautiful and hyperlinked it is. So it says here, on the first day of the week, so that is when this is happening, on the first day of the week, it's a strange way of, 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 of mapping us where we are. Let's just keep that in mind. Jesus is walking with these Two disciples. Now, when you think of these two disciples, what gender do you have in mind? Men. All right. You chauvinist pigs. Um, why men? We just know the one name. The one name is Cleopas. All right. So we, that's the only name that we have. 
And then we read about Cleopas in John's gospel, in John 19, and then we read here, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleopas. By the way, if you were a girl in first century Palestine, your name was Mary. So it gets very confusing. There are just a lot of Marys. Okay? So it's Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and now we, just, we have two disciples walking away. These guys were just at the cross, two disciples walking away back to Emmaus. One of, them, one of their names is Cleopas. I think it's reasonable to say the other one might have been a Mary. Okay? So here you have, on this first day, Jesus, in his resurrected body, walking with them. That's interesting. And then he sits down with them, and he, he breaks the bread, and we read, and their eyes opened. What does that sound like? What does that remind us of? We're back in the Garden of Eden, where God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of day. They are just walking husband and wife, and God is walking with them. We have that harmony again. In the Garden of Eden, mankind screwed it up by eating the apple, and their eyes opened, and what was the first reaction? Shame. Now their eyes open at the breaking of the bread, and what is their first reaction? Excitement. Didn't our hearts leap out of us, out of our bodies, when we saw how everything in the Scripture was connecting, how, how Jesus is, in fact, the one to redeem Israel, and, and this is just the best news ever. Jesus is saying that this is the first day of new creation. Are you with me? That is why this event takes place on the first day and on the first day. This is new creation that is, that is taking place. In that 1 Corinthians 15 passage where, where Paul talks about um, the resurrection, he calls Jesus the first fruits. He is the first fruits. That is garden language. That is the garden of Eden language that we have all over again. Maybe one last point that, that is worth making. When Mary, Mary Magdalene, um, when, she, when she goes to the tomb, she sees a guy there, and she asks, where have you put my Lord? Then she confuses him for a gardener. So we have a gardener. We have the first fruits. We have God walking with husband and wife in the cool of day. We have the breaking of the bread. We have the eyes opening up. We are back in the Garden of Eden. This is what Israel, Israel have been waiting for all their lives. This is the moment. God is redeeming this world once and for all. What does all of this mean, friends? If, we, if, if you're a Christian and you're excited about the resurrection, be careful not to just be excited about the resurrection as, ah, it happened, we're right, you're wrong. Okay? As in, since of... The resurrection can be proven. Um, uh, if, if, if you're interested in that conversation, I would love to talk to you more about the, the, the evidence for the resurrection. There's a guy, N.T. Wright, um, who's a theologian I really like, and he's, he's really a top-rate ancient historian at, at Oxford University, and he wrote a book, The Resurrection of the Son of God. It's about 800 pages, um, and it's just prolific, and, and he's, he's such a highly esteemed acad academic his colleagues said, when he started with this whole project, they said, by the end of it, he will know that the resurrection is just fool's talk. And the result was he published an 800-page book called The Resurrection of the Son of God, in which he argues for it. So 
we can look at it from that perspective. But we must be careful not to miss the significance of it. The fact that it is an invitation to live in this newly created world. There's this great G.K. Chesterton quote where he says, fairy tales does not teach us that dragons exist. We already know dragons exist. Fairy tales teach us that dragons can be slain. What do I mean by that? It's a, we already know the resurrection happened. That's not the final meaning of the resurrection. The, the final meaning of the resurrection is that this world will not have the last say. The meaning of the resurrection is, is manifold, but it means, among other things, that when tyrants threaten you with death, then you say, ha ha, I'm going to stand for the truth because Jesus is king and you are not. All right? So it invites us into this new life. And, and we are called... To go out, this is the command that Jesus gives. The Great Commission immediately follows this great act of resurrection. He says, go out and tell the nations. This is that Genesis version of go forth and multiply. Can you see the, the link? And even it says, you must, you must multiply. And then after the resurrection, Jesus says, now go forth, be fruitful. Go, go, go make disciples of me. All right? Here's the thing, friends. We are called, in as much as you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, we are called to go out into this world and garden and do gardening. That might disappoint some of you, but it is symbolic, so you can relax. But we are supposed to bring little Edens all over this world. Where we go, we are supposed to be people who are transformed by the story of Jesus. We, we, we take in this resurrection life that he gives us. The old self dies daily and we, we take it in and we try and be little Edens wherever we go. It can mean so much, but let me tell you one way in which it can play out. There's a horrible flood that happened in KZN. Anna spoke about it. And if you want our banking details, you're more than welcome to get them. And if you want to pay in money for the flood specifically, just use floods as a reference. We've got a friend there, Sapiwe, um, who's very involved with the, the flood victims in KZN. He's an Anglican priest, and he's not politically connected. So uh, you can relax about your money going directly there. But, but that's a way in which when people are dismayed and despondent about, oh, just look at the devastation caused by, how can you ever fix that? We as Christians are stupid and naive enough to say, well, our job is to just bring a little bit of Eden. And at the moment, we're not in KZN, but we can help the church there to help. What about, that? What about other things? Relationships die. Relationships die because of our inability to do introspection, our inability to change, and also our inability to forgive. So if you have this resurrection life in you, then you can go to these broken relationships and you can forgive and begin again and breathe new life into the nostrils of these dead relationships. If we are followers of Jesus and we take this resurrection seriously, then we should do that. We will bring Eden in that little relationship right there. I had this bizarre experience a couple of weeks ago. I think I told you of just the obvious racism that I experienced in Marble Hall when we tried to, to do good there and uh, just a lot of members in the Afrikaans community just blocked us completely. And the conversations I had with them, and these were numbers that I got through the church. So these are church elders 
who just swore and used the K-word. It was, it, it was just sort of apartheid-era racism that we thought was dead. And so despondent when I, when I, when I encountered that. And it was a day later, after, the, after we went to Marble Hall, that my sister, visiting from England, uh, they were pulled over, and she only had a British driver's license, and these Metro Police officers said that this is unacceptable, they had kids in the car, and they said that um, we're gonna have to lock you up. Kids are crying, and eventually my brother-in-law pays a thousand rand. I hear the story, and I hate it, I hate bribes, um, I just lose it a little bit. So I drive, I ask, where are, where are they standing? And I say, no, they're standing there at Harshfontein, where on the N1. And I just go there and I say, I want a thousand rand back, please. Um, you, you guys just took a thousand rand from these people. Kids were crying. You guys know exactly, there are six of you. Apparently, there were three of you who took this bribe. Please give it to me right now. And uh, nobody wanted to give the thousand rand back, um, to my amazement. So, so I said, uh, you know what? Um, uh, it's guys like you that's holding this country back. It's guys like you that's holding this country back. And without even taking a breath, the one cop said, it is because you stole the land. And I just thought, oh, man. So, so, this, is, so this is restitution, okay? Is, is that what you are doing? You are, you, you, are, you are taking back the land one bribe at a time. Um, and I said, okay, you know what? If I'm not going to get back the bribe, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to sit here and just make sure you guys don't take any bribes for the rest of the night. And I sat there, and they were gone in five minutes, okay? And, and I, I went back, and, and everybody, the, the conversation was just, ah, oh, this country, ah, oh, this horrible. And now I just had this, you know, racism 24 hours ago. Now I have the complete opposite experience. And as people following Jesus, believing in the resurrection, we say, no, we've got hope. We're not blind to these things, but we've got hope. We start again. And if it means that more South Africans must just go and stop uh, next to Metro police officers and traffic police officers and ensure that they don't get any bribes, um, then, then that's what we do. But there is, a, there is a naivete that comes with following Jesus and believing that I think, look, my attitude wasn't great, all right? So I don't want to say... I don't want to say that I brought Eden on the corner of Gaarsfontein and the N1. Um, but I could have. Um, had, had, I, had I not you know, you know, left the car open and just ran and just started accusing everybody, although they are guilty as hell. But um, the, the, the point is, friends, that, that, that Jesus' story... And the fact that we reflect on this and not just what we read in the newspapers. We reflect on this and not just what we experience on the roads. What that means is that we, we're supposed to be different. We're supposed to live in the light of the resurrection. And cynicism doesn't have any, uh, any right to be within our worldview. That, that be a part of our the way that we see um, uh, life. So we forget this because we, we often just look into those things. We, we, we get cynical. We fall back on bad habits. We gossip. We unforgiving. We greedy. We 
we, 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 we just fall back on, on all of these, these, these things. We, we try to end relationships and try of, in, in, instead of trying to mend relationships. And, and what we are supposed to do is reflect on the resurrection, reflect on how this is the hope, that how this is the, the, the climax of the whole biblical story. And Jesus knew that we will forget it. But somehow when we, when, we, when we have communion, somehow when we break the bread and when we take the cup, that is when our eyes open. So in the same way that the eyes open of these disciples, likewise we are urged to take the cup, to break the bread, so that our eyes can open to this reality of the of the resurrection and that we can live in light of it what I want us to do now is pray and then after that those of you who want to please do not feel like you need to um, if you if you want to learn more about what communion is then you can ask us later but don't feel forced to take it but if you're a follower of Jesus this is one of the ways in which we in which we see in which we are reminded of this great reality let us pray Lord Jesus, we, we thank you, Lord, that you are you're the one that all of these respective third days led up to all, all along. You are new life coming forth from the ground. You are the start of new creation. Lord, you are... You are the fuel, the first fruit that drives this renewal process. And Lord, I want to ask your forgiveness when resurrection is just something that we say, ah, oh, yeah, that's why our faith is true and we just go on with it. But we don't recognize the invitation that comes with the resurrection and that is to partake in this new life. Lord, before we get to resurrection, our old lives have to die continuously and that is difficult. And I pray that you will soften our hearts and that we will be able to let go of, of this old life that is still just clinging on to our flesh and that you will raise up new life in your glorious resurrection. It's our prayer, Lord, that we will not just keep this to ourselves, but that we will take it out to others, that we will go forth and multiply the good news. And it's also our prayer, Lord, that even if, it, if we feel insignificant, the small things that we do, that we, that we will take seriously this invitation to re-Edenize the world, to be a little bit of Eden, there where we maybe instead of slandering someone at work or at home or whatever, we defend their character. Uh, whatever it might be, Lord, it might be it's forgiveness, maybe... Maybe it's a restoration of relationships. Maybe it is generosity. Whatever it may, may, may be, Lord, we pray that we will be so transformed by your love and your resurrection that those things will just come naturally to us. Thank you, Lord, that you gave us this new covenant in which you relate to us and that we are truly free. And we pray this, Lord, on this wonderful day on Resurrection Sunday, in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.